It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Yep, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. And thanks for all of the support uh, via the patron accounts. Folks like uh, Trent and Trudy and Yuri and Karen and Keith and uh, John and Joseph. I appreciate all of your support. Um, I got a call from the dentist uh, yesterday, the dentist's office. They're closed, so my appointment uh, has been canceled. They are apparently not doing any more preventative appointments, all of them canceled and they said they would uh reschedule at some point in the future don't know when but they left a message and so we'll have to deal with that this is sort of the collateral damage that is done by the lockdowns right all of these quote elective procedures all of these businesses that cannot function but now think about it like they're doing emergency stuff if you have like a toothache or whatever i guess they're still doing uh, that work just no preventative appointments so what does that mean well what like i go to a dentist uh, zoe dental here in Asheville, and they uh they do the soft tissue cancer screening in the mouth so uh i would get that done every 6 months and so now i'm not and what happens if i have it I'm not going to know I have it for at least another six months, right? Or I guess when I go for the next appointment. So um, th- these are sort of the collateral damage costs that are incurred by society uh, during the lockdown. And you never hear about these costs whenever you're uh, debating or discussing uh, the lockdown reopening, how to reopen, when to reopen. It's always just this, you want people to die, argument that uh, usually occurs. It's just so frustrating, like trying to buy a bed uh, when you've got a, a pandemic, you know, like that's it's it's frustrating, which is why Mattress Man um, has set up a whole system now from the online store. They oh, they redid their entire website at mattressmanstores.com. They redid the whole website to uh, make it uh, easy for you to uh, to see all of the inventory, everything that they have in stock, um, and uh, you can shop for your mattress there. Now, uh, some people, you know, you're not going to want to buy a mattress just over the internet, just by looking at it. You're going to want to lay on it, and the Mattress Man, like, prefers you do that their sleep consultants are uh you know trained for six weeks extensive training for six weeks that all of their sleep consultants go through so uh they help people pick the right mattress and all of that was built around a model where you go into the store and are able to sit down lay down on the beds and such they are still able to do this private in-store appointments okay so go to their website mattressmanstores.com mattressmanstores.com and uh, you can make an appointment. You can call them as well. Uh, go to their website. You can get the phone number for the nearest store uh, to you. They've got four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. So if you're listening to the podcast in some other state and you want a bed and you want to support a program that uh, or a store that supports this program, uh, Mattress Man Stores will ship it. If you are local, they will deliver it. White Glove Delivery Service for free. That's what they do for their local customers. And if you buy a mattress on their website, rest well. Use the code rest well. 
uh, all one word, and get an additional 20% savings site-wide. If you do go to their store for the private in-store appointment, uh, they do observe all social distancing rules, so six feet apart and all that. Um, there's only going to be you in the store at the at the time. There's nobody else, no other customers, just you and the sleep consultant. Um, and they sanitize the card reader and the register after every use. And they have single-use pillowcases uh, provided to each visitor. So if you want to lay down and test uh, the mattresses and stuff, you'll be able to do that safely. Again, can the business operate safely? Mattress Man Stores says yes. Go and experience the difference at Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. So there is a new proposal in North Carolina from uh, a bunch of uh, state senators. And one of the sponsors of the uh, North Carolina... Freedom to Work Act uh, joins me now. It is Senator Warren Daniel. He's a Republican from District 46, just up I-40 there in Avery, Burke, and Caldwell Counties. Welcome, Senator. How are you? Great, Pete. Um, thanks for having me here Certainly, today. certainly. So uh, what was the, uh, I guess we'll start with, uh, what is the NC Freedom to Work Act? What does it do, uh, and how is it structured? So Essentially, it's a bill that decriminalizes violations of executive orders that are prohibiting certain people from the ability to work. Um, so really the bill's about um, economic liberty, and I think the sponsors, myself, Senator Sawyer and Senator Ford, just felt like that you know, we, the primary function of government is to protect constitutional rights, um, but what we're starting to see is that you know, the power of government is being to used to take away fundamental rights. And so this bill was um, basically done, or, or the, the function of the bill is to take away the ability of government to charge a criminal offense for somebody who uh, decides to work and um, would replace it with just a reasonable fine um, that we consider minimal. What prompted uh, you and your colleagues to consider sponsoring this bill and writing it up? Well, I think all of us are hearing from our constituents, um, you know, especially barbers, hairdressers, gym owners, and those kind of uh, people who are employed in those industries, and you know, people who have worked six days a week for 25 years, and now they're told by government they have to sit at home. Um, so I think, and then now we're just starting to see also the police take action in certain areas and to, to close down businesses who who decide to reopen in some cases, out of desperation. So I think that those are the things that prompted the bill. So, uh, um, there was a case, I think everybody uh, uh, saw this, I guess anybody who was paying attention to the news saw this case of the tattoo artist in Apex. Uh, is Was his arrest part of uh, the motivation? Uh, what about the, um, uh, the reopen NC demonstrations? Well, I think the, you know, the bill was in the works before we started seeing some um, some of these things. There was also, a, I think, a hair salon that was closed in Person County in the last week or so as well. Um, so these are sort of symptoms that just prove to us that the, the bill was necessary. Um, you know, I, I think we were thinking about this before the Reopen NC movement. Um, and I think one of the key things to remember about the executive orders, you know, a, apart from, you know, whether you think the governor has the authority to deprive somebody of their economic liberty. You know, the executive orders really discriminate against certain types of businesses. And, you know, for, for instance, one of my colleagues 
Senator Jim Perry you know, pointed out that you know you could have a, a retail store and a church side by side, and the, the you know the, the retail store can have X number of occupants, but the church has to stay vacant. You know, so there's a lot of sort of ironies in these executive orders in what they target and what they don't. Uh, there's one uh, sort of perverse irony uh, that you all mentioned in your press release, actually, that uh, at a time when jails are being emptied uh, of various levels of offenders uh, for COVID-19 related reasons, uh, there seems to be some sort of a desire to now fill them up with hairdressers and uh, and barbers and such. Yeah, you know, obviously we did that because it, you know, it resonates with, with people and North Carolina hasn't been on the cutting edge of states that are that are trying to, you know, release prisoners. Um, but it but it is being talked about for prisoners who are, you know, close to their release dates or who are sort of elderly and vulnerable. Um, though you could argue that it's actually putting some of those folks more at risk if if they're released. But also we, you know, we we did make the point that. Um, and in a lot of cases, liberal interest groups want to decriminalize everything, and now they want to criminalize, you know, working your in your small business. So. Well, is that it's sort of in in line with the philosophy that that which is not mandated is prohibited, right? Like that's that's sort of the that's sort of their jam, I understand. So uh, it, it does seem that there there seems to me to be at least some undercurrent uh, of almost. Uh, satisfaction uh at the vengeance almost being uh, exacted upon small businesses because anytime you you engage with somebody about uh the economic costs of the lockdowns um it almost immediately shifts into this attack that you want people to die and suffer uh all for the almighty dollar it's pitted as sort of a lives versus money uh argument and and do you think that's a fair argument is that the way to look at these questions or is there a better is there a better prism well i, th- I think in, initially these type measures maybe were prudent because at the time nobody knew what the curve was going to look like and they never they didn't know what is the demand going to be on our hospital beds but now we're six seven eight weeks into this and we kind of have a statistical feel for um, what the virus is going to do across the state. So I think sort of the, that time period has passed when we need to um, say people, you know, let people go back to work. Um, certainly all the, all the people that I've talked to in you know these industries that have been closed are willing to even do extraordinary um, safety measures for their employees and customers i think they know better than government how to do that um you know they talk to me about it so i don't really think that that is a fair um characterization because to a lot of people that are self-employed their income you know it's not just a livelihood it's putting food on the table for their family their children it's you know paying their taxes so the core functions of government can continue it's supporting charities and nonprofits and paying their tithe to their church. So, um, you know, there's just, there's a lot of dominoes that fall when you stop a person from enjoying the fruits of their own labor. This also kind of raises that question of essential versus non-essential business. And uh, ever since they first uh, rolled out those terms and those delineations, I've 
it makes me cringe. I, I hate I, I hate that delineation because I don't think it's accurate and it's not helpful. It just gets people thinking um, in a different way versus I think what you just alluded to there is can the business operate safely? And I think most business owners are going to want to operate safely for themselves, for their customers and their employees. Sure. I mean, I'm a law office, and I'm not exactly sure why I'm considered essential, but we are. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's some randomness, I think, to, you know, one person who's, in, you know, I guess the executive of a state of 10 million people who's sort of making those decisions. And I think that's been another issue that the legislature has had is, the, you know, with the governor is the lack of transparency in his administration is that you know, what data is being used to make these decisions and how are they being made? And I think, you know, it sort of raises a good point of, of why the people of North Carolina ought to be more comfortable with 170 legislators, you know, debating these things and open and arguing about them and coming up with, you know, a, a plan forward than, you know, the governor doing it in a, in a back room with, you know, no TV cameras, no audio, nobody knows what's going on. And then, you know, we, we sort of get a, a clue an hour before he makes the next edict what he's planning to do and so i think you know there's been a lot of frustration in the legislature because of the lack of transparency of the governor which i imagine it it puts elected officials uh particularly i guess in an election year um in a tough spot because i mean I'm not interested in really hammering the governor during a crisis like this. I, I want him to be successful and, and, and you know, prevent the uh, the surge, the spike in cases, hospitals being overwhelmed, uh, you know, uh, mass death. Uh, like, I, I want him to, to succeed. And like, I'm not rooting for the virus. Right. But on the other hand, I, I'm I'm kind of left scratching my head too, thinking uh, like, I don't know what data is being used. Like, what is, what's our risk? What is what's my risk of going out and getting it and dying from it? And I know that the DHHS has some of that data, but it doesn't seem like they're interested in 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 running those numbers for us, which makes it difficult and now puts people in a position of having to criticize him in a crisis, which kind of sometimes seems unseemly. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of there's several key data points that I think we wish we had. Um, of course, one is what's the number of people who, who have recovered in North Carolina from the virus? You know, so we see this cumulative total every day. But, you know, if you look at it realistically, let's say if every day 300 people are, you know, diagnosed with the virus, there's probably 300 that have recovered that were diagnosed you know, three weeks ago. Hmm. So that's one statistic. You know, we don't really have access to um, the other, we don't really know how many people have actually been exposed in North Carolina versus the confirmed cases. And I think that's why about three weeks ago, we kept pressing the governor to do random sampling and, and, you know, the, they, they refused. So the legislature undertook that project itself with Wake Forest University. And so that's ongoing now. And we hope to have some good data for that in the next, say, couple of weeks. Um, the governor has since then sort of jumped on board and, um, started his own effort, um, you know, I guess as a result of what we were doing. But um, those are just a couple key pieces of data that would help us to know how many people have actually been exposed, what the true risk is, and uh, what the, the curve should look like. Yeah. So when it comes to this p- specific piece of legislation, um, does this essentially neuter the executive order, right? It just it, it's There's no... 
there's no punishment really basically for it. I mean, $25 fine and a dollar right per day after that, but th- there's no real punishment. Uh, is that, uh, are there, do you foresee any unintended consequences for future executive orders? Like might this be self-defeating at some point or a bad idea for a future crisis? Well, the first thing I'd clarify is that this bill only applies to um, executive orders that might be imposed with regard to COVID-19. So it doesn't, you know, change things going forward after this crisis. I see. Um, and I guess I would say the intent of it was to, to yes, to decriminalize the, the right of people who just, just for whatever reason, you know, decide I've got to go back to work. Um, these people are contacting me every day, you know, texting me, you know, when, when are we going to be able to go back to work? So um, the legislature is, we we know we need to take a hard look at our emergency powers statutes. They were designed not for this type of crisis, but for you know the the, the hurricane type crisis that lasts say three to ten days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to do something where um, there's more oversight for a long term um, closure of the state, and that there's more voices that weigh in. Um, in the uh, the article, I'm seeing 29 Republicans in the 50-person state Senate. Uh, 15 of the 29 have signed on to the bill. Is that still accurate, or have you picked up any other uh, supporters? Right now, when I checked this morning, it was 21 of 29 okay. had, had either sponsored or co-sponsored the bill. Um, no Democrats had signed on it at this time, um, which is disappointing. Because I really think this is a bipartisan issue, and you know, frankly, a lot of times, you know, Democrats are strong supporters of constitutional rights, but in this case, I guess they're they're not in support of the economic liberty of North Carolina. Well, and that's well, it. It seems like that's one of the unfortunate parts of uh, of I guess our society and where we are right now is everything gets washed through this political prism, and so it, it's it's now turned political the and it's really odd because you've got states that are reopening that are run by democrats and republicans right like it's it, every state has its own issues and its own process that it's going through and it doesn't seem to me to be a partisan issue but it seems some people really are intent on making it that way um were were, were there any uh, efforts to get democrats to get on board with this to ask them for support and um I think because you're going to need you're going to need a couple Democrats, right? If the governor tries to veto this, we would need one in the um, in the Senate, mm-hmm. and the House would need several. Um, at, at this point, I think we haven't really had the time. You know, we're we're not in Raleigh right now. We haven't really had the time to have those type of discussions. All the, um, I guess, working together was aimed at the the funding bills that we passed last Saturday. Um, so I hope to have those conversations as we go forward with some of our friends across the aisle. Um, and we'll, we'll return on, we're, we're planning to return on the 18th. So um, I, I hope this bill can you know, get a hearing in short order. Yeah. Uh, there is uh, in Section 3 uh, of the legislation uh, proposed says no occupational licensing board, as that term is defined, 
uh, may revoke a license, issue a fine, or take any adverse action against a licensee on the basis that the licensee has violated an executive order uh, or prohibition or restriction referred in Section 1 of this Act. Um, and so this does that also just apply to the COVID-19-related executive orders? Because uh, I would like to see maybe that just uh, run separately <laughs> forever. <laughs> just I'm not a big fan of a lot of these licensing boards and such. So would that is it possible that sort of uh, that that protection could could stand on its own? Um, I'm glad you bring that point up. It's actually a good idea. I think in the context of this bill, it applies to the COVID-19 crisis, but it certainly is something that's worth thinking about in the larger framework of emergency powers. And this is just something that, that we put in the bill because we started hearing anecdotal evidence about you know, boards who were threatening to revoke licenses of their folks who might want to go back to work. Um, I guess if I back up to Section 2, in, in terms of the fines, um, we had a, there's also a provision that um, requires municipalities and counties to, to refund excessive fines that were in excess of $25, and that was sort of the result of you know, some of the excessive fines we had heard around the state for things like walking on the beach or you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Right, yeah. You can't walk on the beach, but you can walk on the sidewalk next to the beach, uh, I think was the the problem down at, uh, at the coast, yeah. I think also probably a lot of people uh, would be surprised to learn how long you have to uh, go to barber college and then be licensed uh, to cut hair, the amount of time and effort it takes to get a license to do that. Uh, and now it gets jeopardized because uh, the state uh, told you to, to shut down. I can't imagine going through... Uh, the uh, the licensing process again after doing it once uh, for barbers. So um, it, last uh, my last question, sort of a, it's actually almost a request of you because um, I, I'm trying to make a thing happen, which is uh, an acronym for the Stay at Home Executive Order, S H E O SHEO. I would very much like to have this word kind of become the acceptable acronym. So uh, if you know if you get a chance. Maybe use it, try it out, see how it sounds, and uh, maybe you know spread spread the shio far and wide. Fair enough. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add that you think is important or interesting on this that folks should know? Um, well, I think the just the key takeaway from this bill is that all jobs are essential because no matter what your chosen profession, you know that's how you've chosen to live your life. It's how you decided to devote your time to supporting yourself, your family, you know, to paying taxes, to supporting charities. So I think, um, you know, this bill is about the reality that um, there's economic liberty guaranteed in our constitutions and all jobs are essential to someone. Senator Warren Daniel, Republican from District 46, covering Avery, Burke and Caldwell counties. Thanks so much for your time, sir. I do appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Pete. I enjoyed it. All right. Are you prepared for disasters? Do you need some advice on how to be prepared for disasters? Or maybe you're looking for military surplus that is real. Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He will hook you up. He gets new stuff in all of the time. Uh, American made Military surplus because it's real military surplus, okay? Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, 
Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde. Uh, also, uh, he's obviously got his website uh, up and uh, uh, for the pandemic here, and he's doing a lot of business on the website, oldgrouch.com. He has also given me a phone number to pass along to you. It's a text message line, and that number is 565-2497. 565-2497. If you want to make an order, if you want to ask about an item that you've seen on his website, or you want to ask him if he can try to get a hold of something for you, uh, 565-2497. Or if you want to get some advice, he, he can do that via text as well. 565-2497, oldgrouch.com. Uh, hundreds of North Carolina churches might sue Governor Roy Cooper. About 400 of them could join a lawsuit challenging Governor Roy Cooper's statewide Shio, according to the Carolina Journal, Cooper, who in late March ordered North Carolinians to stay home and all non-essential businesses to close, uh, violated the constitutions of the state and federal governments by limiting religious gatherings, according to Representative Keith Kidwell, who is a Republican from Beaufort, uh, who's organizing the lawsuit. He's working with three lawyers and two constitutional law centers to file the lawsuit in state and federal court. About 30 representatives said that they would support it. The lawsuit will likely be filed sometime uh, this week, according to the NC Insider. Kidwell wants religious protections enshrined in a new law. Um, Over the weekend, he filed House Bill 1059, which would allow churches to continue meeting during a state of emergency and allocate money for things like masks and hand sanitizer. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why. Government would be forced to give churches hand sanitizer and masks. That doesn't seem at all to be appropriate to me, at least. But um, co-sponsors include Representative Jason Sane, Representative Mitchell Setzer, and Representative Kyle Hall. State and federal constitutions clearly prevent infringement on religious liberties, Kidwell said. Meanwhile, the governor's order creates a double standard when it comes to what's open and what's closed. For example, big box stores, they can stay open. Uh, Kidwell says it looks like Christmas time for most of them. But churches, not allowed to open, even though they've been declared essential businesses. Churches are the only essential entities in the governor's order that remain subject to the 10-person limit on gatherings. And John, uh, according to John Goose, who is the director of legal studies at the John Locke Foundation. All other businesses and operations are allowed to operate as they wish, as long as they follow social distancing guidelines. So what Goose is saying here is that you're singling out religious organizations for more restrictive treatment. And that and that makes it almost certainly unconstitutional. Because in order for these restrictions uh, to be placed on religious practices, uh, they, they can be allowable. They It is acceptable if they are narrowly tailored to further a, quote, compelling government interest. And... Uh, it's hard to make that case. I mean, yes, you can say compelling government interest is to stop the spread of this highly contagious virus. Obvious compelling government interest. Um, however, not so much so narrowly tailored, right? It, it's hard to see how you order a church to limit itself to 10 people. Meanwhile, you allow, you know, as he says, lawn and garden equipment retailers or bookstores and liquor stores and pet and feed stores, right? You, you allow them to have people in just as long as they're under a 20% occupancy standard. And now that's going to go to 50% on Friday at 5 p.m. So these retailers are going to be able to have, if you're, you know, you're, you can 
uh, what the fire marshal says, you can have a thousand people and now you're going to be able to have 500 in the store at the same time. Well, what about a church? A church may have even more square footage than the retailer does. When you actually talk about uh, square footage that people move around in, right? Because people are able to only walk in the aisles and such at, at, at retail establishments and grocery stores and such. So uh, th- it may it makes it harder to argue the case that this is a narrowly tailored uh, restriction because uh, it seems like the churches are having to labor under one set of rules while retailers uh, get a uh, another. By now, you've probably also heard about Shelley Luther. This is the woman in Dallas, Texas. She owns a salon who, um, uh, which she has continued to operate. She opened it up despite uh, being told, you know, you can't by the executive order in that uh, state. It's uh, the Texas Shio, if you will. Um, and she opened up her store. She got cited for it. And she said, I'm, she got a cease and desist order. And she didn't care. And she just kept uh, operating the salon. And so... Uh, there was a hearing. Dallas Civil District Judge Eric Moyer uh, ordered her to pay thousands of dollars in fines and sentenced her to jail. Seven days in jail for continuing to operate uh, the store, the salon. Um, even though the state has required non-essential businesses to close in response to the coronavirus pandemic, Governor Greg Abbott announced that salons will be allowed to reopen uh, Friday. Uh, the judge heard testimony from a Dallas code inspector and a Dallas police officer who both testified that they saw clients inside the salon getting haircuts and manicures over the last seven days, despite this judge's rulings. City attorneys argued that Shelley Luther willfully and flagrantly violated Moyer's order. Um, she took the stand saying that she had to uh, uh, open up her salon, keep it going, out of necessity. And uh, she also testified that she did get a loan from the federal government, though. So that makes this story a little bit confusing for me. And I'm going to play some audio uh, because I'm not a fan of, what the, uh, of this judge out in Dallas. Uh, but... The it, it it seems like there's an element that's been missing. I've seen people uh, talking about this story on social media and everybody's up in arms about it. And I think inspired by the fact that the, the judge behaved the way he did and said what he said, which I will get to. But um, I do think it's a, it, it's an important piece of the story that she did get the money from the feds. She got the loan. Right. She got a bunch of money, which theoretically is supposed to be used to keep her employees employed. And. She says that the reason she's opening is that she has to keep food on the table and keep her employees um, paid. Well, what was the what was the loan money for then? What did what did you use the federal money for? I think that's an important part of the story. That does not, in any way, shape, or form, excuse or justify what the judge said. Right here, here is what. Listen to this. This is this is a. I don't know if they're elected or appointed in Texas. I really don't. But this guy shouldn't he should not be anywhere near a position of authority. Listen, listen to how he uh, frames uh, his argument here or his before he hands down justice. Listen to this. That you now see the error of your ways and understand that the society cannot function where one's own belief in a concept of liberty permits you to flaunt your disdain for the rulings of duly elected officials. 
that you owe an apology to the elected officials whom you disrespect, disrespected, but flagrantly ignoring, and in one case defiling their orders, which you now know obviously apply to you. All right, so flagrantly defiling, what did she tear it up? What did she tear up a cease and desist letter or a temporary restraining order? She's like, screw you, I tear it up. They, sometimes judges are, are some of the most pettiest tyrants out there. These lawyers that get robes and then they they go on these power trips, you know. Um, there are some very good judges, don't get me wrong, some really good judges, people that you want to be on the bench. And then you get people that are like this. He's saying this guy, he's he, oh, the uh that that you are uh 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 flagrantly defying and defiling these the, these elected leaders. That you disrespected these elected leaders. Dude, this is America, man. We disrespect everybody. <laughs> If that's that's my right I to disrespect whoever I want. Like that is that is the sort of a core foundational principle of our country that that we don't care if you are an elected leader. We don't care if you're a government official. That's the beauty of the system is that you get and, and th- this is the right the freedoms that are enshrined in our constitution are there specifically so we can say these things to you, judge your honor he's reading from a statement here and he's saying uh that these are the things that you lady that you need to do in order for me to not come down harshly on you and give you the max sentence i can give you Matt, if you're willing to admit these things if you're willing to say that you were wrong and you did a bad thing and you disrespected me and you tore up that order and you did this bad thing if you're willing to say all of that, then maybe, you know what, uh, maybe I'll go easy on you. Uh, I'll, I won't throw you in jail, and maybe I won't fine you so much money. He continues. That you understand that the proper way in which an or- in an ordered society to engage concerns which you may have had is to hire a lawyer okay. and advocate for change. All right, screw you, man. No, really, screw you. That is not the only way to advocate for change is to hire a freaking lawyer. Go to hell, man. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I'm sorry. These these lawyers, this guy's from Harvard. Like, the just the arrogance and the condescension and the elitism here. Screw you. Go hire a lawyer. That's the way to affect change. Go hire a lawyer. Screw you, man. I do not need a lawyer to advocate for change. That's not what we do not have. What is it called? A cacistocracy or something like that? A cacistocracy, I think, is the way I think that's what it is. Or maybe I'm just making up a word. We may never know. But I think that's it's uh, essentially a government run by lawyers. It's terrible, which is basically what we have. An exception or an amendment to laws that you find offensive. That you publicly state that this is the way that citizens in the state should behave. And that you represent to this court that you will today cease operation of your salon and not reopen until after further orders of this of the government permit you to do so. This court will consider the payment of a fine in lieu of the incarceration, which you've demonstrated that you have so clearly earned. Is there anything you would like to say? So he says, you have so clearly earned this incarceration, but I'm willing to not throw you in jail and just fine you if you're willing to, uh, you know, express your love and loyalty to the dear leader. 
I'm I'm sorry to uh, to these elected officials that shall not be uh, disrespected and defiled. And so here was uh, here was the response from the salon owner Shelley Luther. Proceed. Judge, I would like to say that I have much respect for this court and laws and that I've never been, been in this position before. And it's not some place that I want to be. But I have to disagree with you, sir, when I when you say that I'm selfish because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision. But I am not going to shut the salon. And so he threw her in jail for seven days. And honestly, that's the courage of your convictions. That's putting something at risk, risking, you know, your your uh, your good name and your fortune and your very lives. Right. Like this is the point of protest. This is the point of the demonstration. This was one of the things, uh, the beefs I had with uh, the Moral Mondayers who would like, oh, yeah, we're all going to go get arrested. And knowing full well that the whole point of the mass arrest, aside from the media coverage and make you know Republicans out to be these evil uh, tyrants uh, in the legislature. But the whole point was to do a mass arrest and this way everybody then gets turned loose. And is that really uh, like, is that really a risk? No. Because there isn't any real threat of consequence. You're going to get hands zip tied behind you. You're going to get processed through the Capitol uh, uh, Police Department or whatever, and then you're going to get turned loose. And then most of these people had their charges dropped. So there was literally nothing to risk. You just wasted some time. That's all. You, you, Yeah, I mean, instead of standing outside the Capitol, you sat inside the Capitol for a couple hours. That was it. That was what they risked. This woman is actually risking something for her beliefs. Um, Can she operate safely? It appears she has been, right? Everybody's in the mask and she's sanitizing Emirates by appointment only and social distancing and all of that. This This has been a very clarifying time. We are starting to see people, much like this judge, we're starting to see people in their true nature, you know, and, and, what they value and how they operate. We're starting to see the petty tyrants emerge. And we're also getting clarity on who are good people to work for and who are not good people to work for, right? We're starting to see who are good uh, people to rent uh, uh, apartments from, companies that are doing good by their tenants, doing right by their tenants. And you have landlords who are not doing right or good by their tenants. It's very clarifying. We're starting to see uh, what people are made of, just like we do really in, in many times of crisis. Now, don't let buying or selling a home be a crisis in a crisis for you. You want to call my friend Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team at 333-4483. And you may be thinking about postponing buying a home or selling your home over the next few weeks, but either way, Rowena Patton looks forward to guiding you through your next real estate transaction. So why not give them a call today? The whole All-Star Powerhouse team is ready to take your call and help you with your home buying uh, or home selling questions. Uh, And uh, they're happy to talk with you without any pressure. And so you know you're going to be ready when the time is right for you. So start out with a video consult with Rowena. Her number again is 333-4483. 
or again, mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. All right, so I've been following over the last few weeks the uh, stories about what's going on with the, the, the meat packing, meat processing facilities, poultry processors around the country, the, the food supply lines and the distribution systems. And uh, I haven't really gotten into it, but I do have a couple of stories here that are connected. And uh, it seems like there are now going to be disruptions in the supply system. Whereas a couple of weeks ago, or, or I guess now months ago, remember when uh, when there was the run on toilet paper everywhere, uh, that wasn't necessarily a distribution problem. That was a supply and demand issue. And we saw a lot of the same stuff happen with the meat departments at grocery stores where they started limiting people to two packs of meat, for example, at Ingalls, uh, our grocery store here, uh, because uh, people were buying lots and lots of, uh, of the meat and then there wouldn't be any because there just wasn't uh, enough uh, supply to meet the uh, spike in demand. It was a lot of panic buying that uh, that drained the supplies, but the distribution system was fine. Uh, but my concern has always been uh, the long-term impact that this is having on the food supply system and uh, the distribution system. And uh, we're starting to see some of the cracks and some of the collateral costs of shutting everything down now there are also collateral costs by the way of opening everything back up like this is risk assessment that's why it can't strictly be just listen to this doctor listen to this medical person listen to this computer modeler uh and we're only going to listen to them you can't only listen to the medical people because they're going to keep saying keep everything shut down keep everything shut down and uh that's not what a uh that's not what our elected leaders need to only be accounting for. So uh, the, this is from the New York Post. Meat shortages uh, have come sooner than expected, likely thanks to the hoarders. Costco said that it's going to be limiting customers to just three packages of meat. I mean, it is Costco, so you always get more. <laughs> All right. Our grocery stores were doing two, but Costco is like, well, you know. We are big, so <laughs> you can have three. So they're limiting customers to three. Kroger Supermarkets posted an alert on the meat section of its website warning that it may have limited inventory due to high demand. Grocers have been bracing for a run on meat this month in mid-May as major meat processing plants, including Tyson Foods, have been forced to shut down production. But the shortages appear to have come earlier than expected, as consumers who were worried about the meat shortage have been stocking up, say experts. Tyson Foods, which has closed a number of plants uh, after employees became ill with the coronavirus, said that the pandemic will disrupt the meat supply chain for many more months, despite an executive order from President Trump to keep processing plants open. Um, so one of the problems uh, is that uh, you've got these uh like cows and pigs, uh, I think it's particularly with the pigs because they get very fat, very big, very fast. Uh, pigs, they only raise a pig for like eight months or something like that, and then it's fat enough to slaughter. Uh, so they, they don't have very long lifespans. But if you don't get them into the facility to slaughter them, they keep getting bigger and fatter, and then they become too fat to uh, uh, to walk the, the green mile. You know, they, they get too fat to uh, fit through the chutes and stuff. And so <laughs> you're too fat to kill. So um, this is a problem. And so the prospect here is that you're going to end up with a lot of these uh, farms that end up having to slaughter their herds and not use them for food, right? Not go into the facilities. 
Um, let me get to some of this audio here. This is Mike Sprayberry, the director of emergency operations. He started his comments with an update on the food supply. Take a listen. The mission to support the food supply chain continues. 83 counties now have appointed feeding coordinators, and we thank them for that. 178 soldiers and airmen from the North Carolina National Guard are supporting food banks, and 98 guardsmen are supporting school districts. The food supply chain work group is meeting daily and is working to fill feeding gaps and to support the food system. You can also help make sure people are fed with a donation to a local food bank. Visit feedingthecarolinas.org to find a food bank near you, or you can donate online. All right, so feeding coordinators in every county. Did you ever think you would hear that? Uh, This is the Q&A portion of the briefing uh, from yesterday, and this is the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Mandy Cohen, who has asked the first question comes from Joe Fisher, WRAL. My question is about food processing plants throughout the state. Today, we found out that uh, the number of cases has uh, more than doubled in the last week. There's nearly 1,000 cases now. Um, that's almost as many cases that are in jails and could potentially surpass the number of infections uh, that we've seen in nursing homes. And in many cases, workers who we have spoken with at these plants do not know how severe the situation is because they say employers are not relaying comprehensive numbers. And of course, the state at this point has not released information about specific facilities. So um, my question is, do you all plan to confirm the names of these food processing facilities and the number of cases so that the public can uh, try to get a better handle on the outbreaks in their communities? Joe, thanks for that question. As you know, the food processing plants in our state are critical to us keeping up our food supply, not just here in North Carolina, but around the country and around the world. The president has already taken action to keep those food processing plants uh, activated. And we have done a lot of work uh, to uh, make sure that the workers in those plants are protected and that we are keeping those plants open. As you know, this is an industry that is heavily regulated well before COVID-19. It's regulated by the Department of Agriculture. Um, They continue to be the regulatory body here. From the public health standpoint, we have been offering our assistance to make sure that these organizations are doing everything they can to protect their workers and to slow spread of the virus, both at uh, at, in, their, uh, in their plant. So we've been working to provide technical assistance on things like um, using uh, face coverings or masks, putting up barriers, um, or doing other ways of deep cleaning, and, and again, um, good measures that will help prevent the uh, spread of the virus. But this, these are plants that need to continue to run. It is not possible to always do the social distancing. And again, how do we put in place the kinds of things that are necessary so they can keep operating? That's been our primary focus. Um, we've also been working to make sure that their workers can get tested, either bringing testing on site or somewhere close by. The difference between plants, uh, though, and some of our congregate facilities is obviously people come to the plant to work and then they go back home to their communities where where they live. And obviously the virus 
can, can uh, be transmitted in either place. They can pick it up at the plant, but they can also pick it up in their community. So it is a different uh, uh, setting. These are also private business organizations, as you well know. Um, so we are uh, working closely to provide them, as we will to many businesses. We'll provide help and technical assistance to make sure they're able to protect their workers, their customers, and to follow our guidance um, as best as possible as we go forward. All right. Thank you. Right. So I, So remember the question here. No, you don't? Okay, I'll tell you. The question was, do you plan to release the names of the plants where these outbreaks have occurred, and are you going to give us data on how many cases are at the plants? And she did not even come close to answering that. Didn't even try. It's a simple yes or no. Do you plan to release the names of the plants where these outbreaks occurred? Yes or no? Is that a plan? Do you, are, are you planning to do it? I'm not saying that you've decided not to, just are you planning right now to do that? Yes or no? And it sounds like the answer is no, but I don't know. Because she doesn't even come close to answering it. If that's how you feel, by the way, uh, super frustrated, like you can't get any answers when you're trying to set up your business website, uh, I've, I've got a name for you. Schaefer Smith, all right? He's a listener to the, pro- uh, to the program, has been for years, and he has his own um website uh, design and development uh, company called Schaefer Smith. I know, it's amazing how he got that job, right? Uh, If you are scrambling to set up or improve your business website, uh, please go to SchaeferSmith.com. All right, let my friend help you with uh, logos, graphics, photos, uh, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security, professional services. He does corporate. He does business. He does entrepreneurs. All of it. Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and for you so you'll be able to manage your own website and be able to adapt to you know the latest executive order that comes down the pike. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. So the Secretary of Health and Human Services just is not answering this question about whether or not to name the plants. And look, there are good reasons to do so, and I can also see some problems with doing so. Right? On the one hand, you name a business, you name one of these processors, and now nobody wants to buy the food. Right, And then the, the plant goes out of business, everybody loses their job, uh, and also now you don't have anybody making the food. And now people aren't getting food and it's going to disrupt the supply chain, right? So I can see that being a negative impact from naming the business. Also, the business wouldn't depreciate it. You know, please don't name us. It's not our fault. You know, some people came in with COVID and spread it all around our place. It wasn't our fault or whatever. Um, And they don't want the stigma of being some sort of, you know, virus infected processing plant. But on the other hand, um, people who work at that plant... They have, do they have a right to know if there's some outbreak occurring at their work site, right? Um, does the community have a right to know uh, that there's this pandemic outbreak centered in the largest employer in town or in the county? Um, right? If, if we're all in this together, shouldn't we all be in this together, you know? Jonas Pope at the News and Observer uh, then asked a follow-up question, quote, will DHHS release the number of people affected at meat and poultry processing plants and which plants saw the positive test? So he asks the same question. 
that the guy from WRAL asked. Thank you. So on our meat processing plants, as I said before, this is an area that's highly regulated by the Department of Agriculture. We've been doing our assistance to make sure that they are um, complying with our infection control protocols. Currently, um, we do not have additional information about that on our website. In terms of sports, uh, you know... So then she goes on because he asked two parts, uh, one about sports. So you heard her, uh, her answer there. Again, she says... It's a highly regulated industry, even before COVID-19. And then she kind of tosses it to the agriculture commissioner who is in charge of overseeing processing plants and stuff like that in North Carolina, right? The That's Steve Troxler, who's a Republican, by the way, and has not been at any of the governor's press briefings, has not been at any of the DHS, uh, HHS uh, briefings. Is he part of their feeding work group or whatever it was that Sprayberry mentioned earlier? Don't know. Haven't really heard anything from him, from uh, Troxler in all of this. Again, are we all in this together? Kate Martin from Carolina Public Press then follows up again as part of another two-part question. Also, I'd like to follow up on the NNO reporter's question on the food processing plants. You had said that information is not currently on the website on the number of infections and the locations of those plants. Does your department have that information? And if so, why won't you put it on the website? All right, so let me get back to food processing plants um, and sort of our, our role uh, here has really been in a technical assistance role to help them comply with infection control um, and to bring testing close to their Obviously, it's an industry that's been highly regulated by the agricultural department. Um, as I looked around, um, we, we had been starting to get these questions the other day. As I look around to other states in terms of displaying these kinds of information, I could only find one other state uh, that, that had that kind of information. Uh, but I hear you. Everyone is, uh, wants more and more information. And so uh, stay tuned for, for more information about that. Okay. So, all right. so stay tuned. Uh, we don't have it. Because, uh, again, the question was, does your department have the info? And if you have it, why won't you put it on the website? So I'm not sure. I'm not sure she has it. I'm not sure that her department has it. it, it it's another example of how uh, she goes out to these briefings, and despite getting a heads up that this was going to come up, she just said it right there. You know, I know we've been getting some questions about this. Well, if you know you're getting questions about it, why do you not have a better answer right th- right now? How does that happen? Maybe you can borrow one of uh, Governor Cooper's 8,000 communications staffers. All right, uh, that's it for today. We'll talk with you tomorrow. Uh, thank you very much for the support. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Download it, subscribe. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.